This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches For the show, Brian Jones and Jason Johannes. Welcome to another episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast. Jason's here. What's up? What's going on, man? Uh, not a whole lot's going on with me, actually. Um, my band is getting ready to play on Dayton TV this coming weekend. We're gonna get play a live set and be interviewed. So nice. And later on that night in Columbus, Marcus King is coming to town. And if the timing works out, Brian, I'm going to go see Marcus King. And uh, I believe Drew Smithers, formerly of Bishop Gunn, is playing in Marcus King's band. No kidding. I had I think no so. idea. I'm pretty sure. I have no idea. I know Dean Del Rey is the opener. He's doing comedy for like 30 yeah. minutes before Marcus comes out. And he's a big Marcus King fan. If you listen to the latest State of America podcast. I did. And they had Dean Elroy. He talked all about Marcus King. Yeah, that was awesome. That was awesome listening to that. That was a lot of fun. And he likes a lot of the same music that we like and talk about, too. For sure. So now State I'm of gonna... America boys, Brian, yep. always doing a good job, aren't yep. they? Yep. David Hudson and Ian Rice from the State of America. So I'm going to test you now. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Um, did you watch? Uh, I, last night, it happened Saturday night, but I watched it last night, the did you get the live stream of Tyler Bryant and the Shakedown 
the uh, um, did I get it? And did, did I you see it? Watch it. Things I got it. Oh, you haven't seen it yet. Okay, cool. Nope, I have not seen oh, it yet. Oh, cool. But All right. I've I would have been busy the last couple days, but I do have it. I think it it doesn't it expire after forty eight hours. Yep. I think you got to watch it tonight. By the time, the time you guys it. hear this, it'll be like two weeks from now or something. But that that's like the the latest thing going on, man. Holy crap, man! I was just well, like, give us give us a rundown. Give us a run. I've seen him play live with the Georgia Thunderbolts. So you yeah, well, so you you've seen it like live in person. I mean, just I what can I say? I, you know, and I've seen stuff on YouTube before with them, and like I when they did when we talked to him the first time and then they did like the, they did their pandemic show that was live stream. Mm-hmm. It was just them. And so this was really cool, man. It just, so, he's such a natural on stage and well, they all are. And just like the energy and just the way he connects with the audience. And yeah, I did yeah, a rock show. It is I, like a high powered rock show. It is not like you're sitting back and listening to traditional <laughs> blues music. Like a lot of his songs are, it is rock and roll with energy. Yeah. And you know, he plays and plays the resonator a lot. It's almost like almost every other song he's going from yep. the strat to the resonator. Um but a lot a lot of growth from you know from record to record and now mm-hmm. they're taking it another step in, in getting a little more organic. So well when you have your own studio at your house and you're you know messing around with your buddies and a song comes up. You can go in and record it right away. Hell yeah, it's easy to be organic. And that is such a feather in their cap to be able to do that. Like he, it seems like he's probably just archiving everything. Oh, I mean, I I'm sure he, he just rolls on every time album. he picks up yeah. his guitar, you know. And who sure. knows how many songs are going to come out of that? I'm I'm sure they have another album around the corner. But this album, which came out like today, we're recording on the 12th. It came out last Friday. That came out last Friday. GA 20s new album came out last Friday. Both great rock and mm-hmm, blues mm-hmm. records and i'm telling you what that uh shaking the roots album is from tyler Bryan, the shakedown is really really good i've been listening i've actually listened to it probably five or six times since friday okay cool and yeah. that's with us hearing it ahead of time before yeah. we interviewed them i've yeah. listened to it yep. multiple times so i probably listened to it 10 times oh lots and lots lots more to be listened to and you know they they are a band that tips their cap to the blues which is a good segue into our guest which is a great segue into our guest, Brian. We've been doing a little bit of a blues run here recently after doing a lot of rock, Southern rocks. We've been, uh, you know, Tyler Bryant we've had on and um, uh, GA20 we've had on. So we've been doing a lot of blues, blues artists here. Uh, Aaron Coburn, right? Mm-hmm. Another blues artist. So Larkin Poe. Larkin Poe. So we bring it back to not the founder of the blues, but a founder of modern blues media and who we have on today is jim o'neill who founded living blues magazine as a member of the blues hall of fame as a member of a lot of blues uh groups to keep blues music alive yeah uh you guys are going to hear such amazing stuff and for those that are deeper blues fans you're really really going to enjoy this um you know a lot of if, names you're going might not recognize yeah you know and i first started getting you know listening to blues or having people present me with listening to blues probably 30 years ago and i still feel like my knowledge of it is like in its infancy so that's that could be a whole nother thing about the podcast and i'm get pretty analytical and spinning my head sometimes but like you know we're learning more about you know what our 
part of what our podcast is about, you know, and I just got this desire to get deeper into the blues community. Like I said, we've really uh, put a lot of focus onto the Southern rock, which, you know, that everything works out the way it should, you know, and now we're just kind of, we're digging deeper and to talk to Jim who has known, you know, some of the classic blues players and just, just knows all about the passion of it and knows more deeper of its meaning and just uh gosh you know i don't know i don't know what else to say it's just that you guys are gonna enjoy the hell out of this absolutely like you're gonna find too. out some yeah and you're gonna find out a lot a lot of classic and a lot of under under unknown gems in this interview yeah so enough uh with us chatting you guys are gonna love this uh just uh listen and kick back relax and uh you know have your favorite beverage pet your dog pet your cat and listen to our conversation with jim o'neill from the founder of living blues magazine We're here at the guest segment of the podcast. You guys know I always throw it over to Jason. Tell you, the listeners, who we have with us today. Oh, man, Brian. We have a very special guest. Uh, not only is this guy an American blues expert, he's a record producer, and he founded the first blues magazine called Living Blues. He found it out of Chicago. It's Mr. Jim O'Neill. How you doing, Jim? I'm great. It's glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for Good having me here. holding up. <laughs> Living Blues Magazine with Kenny Wayne on the front of it. Look at that. So Jim, he's a suck up, Jim. Do you see that? Automatically <laughs> just went to hold up the out the record or the magazine right away. Man, we got a lot of questions. I mean, just maybe start out like like how'd you get into the blues? Like what what brought you there? Well, I discovered it uh, like a lot of kids from my generation through. Uh, the British blues band, British rock bands who were doing blues, um, mostly the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, and then Cream, Eric Clapton. John Mayall. John Mayall, the Animals were doing it. I mean, oh, actually, yeah. if, you, if, if you look at a lot of those albums from back then, even bands like the Kinks and the Who were doing blues on occasion, yep. you know? I so remember- I traced it back from there. You know, I started seeing the names who wrote these? Who wrote these songs for the Rolling Stones? You know, mm -hmm. Morganfield, who's that? You know, <laughs> that was Muddy Waters. You know, and Chester Burnett was Howlin' Wolf, and James Moore was Slim Harpo. So uh, that's really what got me into it, and then I just uh, went crazy on it from there. <laughs> are are you a guitar player as well, or? No, I thought maybe I'd be a musician at first, but once I got into the blues, I realized this was something I could contribute to. Um, there was a void because there wasn't a blues magazine in the United States and and the authentic original blues artists weren't getting the recognition that the people who covered their songs were. And uh, so I thought that would be a better route for me than trying to be a musician. That's incredible to hear that, you know, I mean, because uh, in a different kind of way, like the, you know, the bands from the south that we talk to and cover it's the same kind of 
way these days without the big record industry record company stuff these bands will get a lot of like uh attention but it's crazy to think about the blues like that that back then there was nobody you know you're one of the first to, to cover it so that that's really amazing that's awesome i have utmost respect for that well there were people in england and in europe who were much more hip to it than we were they were there were magazines in uh england and australia and sweden and france covering and belgium covering blues before we did mm -hmm. so actually we learned a lot from the british blues magazine blues unlimited and i think too the radio stations over in europe were playing a lot of the american blues that even the local radio stations at that time weren't as playing as much of right right the rock stations you know they had just just started to playing it you know it had become become part of the underground scene sort of the counterculture yeah was, became adopted by that that uh, group in the united states but it had already been more accepted in europe and of course if you listen to the right stations the black stations you could have been hearing it all along and i really wish i wish i had found that out earlier and there was a station from nashville called wlac that had a clear channel uh broadcast that reached all across the country and they had late night blues all the time so at what point like you did you know decide you're gonna like start a magazine like what how long from that thought till it came about like how did that all work it didn't take long actually because um Right at the time I got into blues, I, I was in college at Northwestern and I switched to journalism at the same time. And so that kind of coincided and I decided I wanted to write about blues, you know, and other things that they were, were teaching there, but blues uh, really caught my attention and, and realizing there wasn't a place, uh, much place in the United States to read them. I and you could read about it in Downbeat, the jazz magazine, or you could read about it in Sing Out, the folk magazine, but there were, it was limited coverage in those magazines. And Rolling Stone too. I actually had a, uh, one of my journalism class articles published in Rolling Stone before the Living Blues started. Um, but to have a whole magazine devoted just to blues, there wasn't one in the United States. Um, so what time was the, did the first magazine come out? Like, when did you start putting it together? First magazine came out in spring 1970. And I had, at that point, I had really only realized, gotten into the blues um, about a year and a half. Because uh, I, I bought an Albert King record at a Kmart in Mobile, Alabama, <laughs> where I grew up. Nice. And and that's and then I real I listened to the Albert King record and I said I've been hearing all these licks before, you know the uh, Eric Clapton played one of them note for note one of the solos and uh, Mike Bloomfield and the Electric Flag had recorded some of the stuff and I said why ha why didn't I know about this you know who's been keeping this from me <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. oh, it's just that uh, <laughs> you know if you knew the right places to go you could have read about it but you, there wasn't much opportunity. For the average uh, rock rock and roll listener to find out about it. So you were born in Fort Wayne, but you said you grew up in Mobile. What point do you move down there? Well, my parents are both from Mississippi, and they were happened to be in Fort Wayne at the time I was born. So after at six weeks old, I uh, they moved 
when I was six weeks old, he moved back to Mississippi. So I grew up in Biloxi and then in Oxford, Memphis for a while, and then finally Mobile. Because I'm going to assume that Fort Wayne did not have a, a happening blues scene. So I was, I was trying to correlate. Well, you get the blues when you're growing up in Fort Wayne. You don't hear much about it, but there, you know, there was there was blues in all the cities almost. Sure. You know? I found later I found out that one of the guys who wrote one of Albert King's songs was from Fort Wayne. So, but no, I never really got into the Fort Wayne scene. But uh, Indianapolis and South Bend have both had good blues scenes. You know, it'd be interesting to hear what did it take, what all goes into if you can, you know, um, summarize that when you first started the magazine compared to what it is now, like, is it more complex now? Like, what, what all what all goes into to putting together a magazine? Well, at that time, you know, there was no computers, you know, it, it was all typesetting. We, we borrowed the, uh, there was an electric typewriter that the underground newspaper in Chicago called the seed head and uh, the seed had this electric typewriter that let us, they let us use a typewriter to uh, typeset the first issue of the magazine. And then we actually invested in some typesetting machines after that. But you had to type the, type the uh, text on a pieces of paper, paste the pieces of paper down onto other pieces of paper that could be shot with a camera to make negatives. And it was, you know, there were a lot of cutting and pasting and gluing. So it was a very manual process compared to what it is today. And then uh, I have to give credit to Bruce Iglauer, who's better known now as the uh, president of Alligator Records. He was actually the one who organized the group that started Living Blues. He was working for Delmark Records at the time. And uh, we met at, at Delmark Records, which was the Jazz Record Mart in Chicago. Delmart Records and the Jazz Record Mart were in the same the same company basically, the record store there. And that's where all the blues fans went to find out about blues. Um, and so Bruce Eglauer and a woman who was my fiance, Amy Van Single, and Paul Guerin, who was a blues author and blues expert, and a few other people got together and we started the magazine. How many, people, well, I guess, how many total people was that that started the magazine? I know you threw off some names, but how many does it take to get going? Well, there were seven of us on the masthead, but there were about four who did the work originally. And uh, as time went on, uh, Amy and I got married and we bought the magazine from Bruce for a dollar, basically. And then I later, we later turned it over to University of Mississippi for for nothing, <laughs> actually for, for no for no cash. But uh, there was supposed to be a percentage of the profits, but that that was another story. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there yeah, Bruce, uh, Amy, and I, and uh, Diane Allman, She was a photographer and did some of the layout. It was basically the, the four of us and Paul Guerin did some writing. So there was five of us, I guess, who were started it but in the end it was Amy and I who did almost all the production and the typesetting and the, the layout and the uh, most a lot of the interviews too and the writing and editing and Bruce ended up doing the distribution. So even today with all like the modern ways of like printing stuff 
is there a lot more that goes into it now? Like, would, would it have been easier for somebody to start a magazine back then compared to now? What's the contrast there? Well, you know, there's not as much of a market now for for print. You know, everything is is on the internet. You know, and so there's there were several other uh, blues magazines that came along after us in the United States, and uh, none of them are still in print, although there are some online. Um, so, I mean, it, the it's much easier with with computers and the internet and everything now to put something together. Um, but I think at the time, like I said, uh, the, it was the right time for a, a print a United States magazine to come along. You know, we're actually a little bit late, but we got there. Right? Mm -hmm. what, what has the blues brought to you in your life as far as like uh, the musicians you've gotten to talk to, where you've gotten to go? Is there any way to put that into words, that, that those kind of experiences? Well, I think the blues opened up, opened up a whole new world to me. I mean, uh, I grew up in the South, Mississippi, Alabama, Memphis, and of course it was segregated at the time. So uh, only in my senior year of high school were there any black students. And uh, so I didn't have a whole lot of expo exposure to black culture, but once I got into the blues and I started going to the blues clubs on the South and West sides of Chicago, uh, that, that really opened it up for me. And then the blues artists were so easy to talk to. Um, and, you know, I could call Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf or Willie Dixon on the phone and they would talk, you know, you could look him up in the phone book even. And B.B. <laughs> King, you know, first time I met B.B. King, you know, I said, told him I wanted to interview him and I called him at his motel and he called me back. You know, today you'd have to go through <laughs> For, mm -hmm. you know, for that stature, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you have to go through layers of secretaries and press agents and stuff. In fact, that's one of the one of the reasons that attracted me is because I was still into the sort of the rock end of the blues at, at that time too. And Jeff Beck had come to Chicago, and I uh, I was wanted to interview him for the student newspaper Northwestern. The magazine hadn't started yet, and uh, so we had it arranged. And then the uh, was about to go out the door, and the press, his press secretary or someone called and said he couldn't do it. And you know that didn't happen with the blues artists. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I could get to them. You know that was they were so accessible, and they were glad to talk to somebody because, you know, they felt that their story hadn't been told, and they weren't being recognized, and so it, it made it easy, really. And it, yeah. you know, it. it certainly widened my view of the world. So you said something interesting that I was going to talk to you about, like this, the segregation. So kind of when you're working up to getting this magazine, you know, you had issues of segregation, finally some of that's beyond, behind you. How hard is it to get, I mean, or what were the challenges to get a rec, an album off that off the ground when you still had like some of those, you know, racial divides in the country? Oh, uh, you mean an album off when I was started the record label? You mean? Yeah, yeah, the record. I mean, or or I'm sorry, the magazine. I'm sorry. Oh, like starting a magazine that's predominantly for black artists because that's what a lot of blues was when you're still going through so many of these racial issues within the country itself. Well, yeah, we felt that was a statement in a way. It was, you know, I didn't get directly involved in the civil rights movement, but 
uh, we kind of figured that that was that was our and that you're making this type of music mainstream right that's normally hey it's been black music now we're making it a little bit more mainstream for everybody yeah trying trying to uh to equalize it a little bit you yeah know, equal rights for for the blues arts so um but the thing was the 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 readership of the magazine has always been primarily white and most of the writers have been too kind of an odd situation but the uh you know we that's that's what we well, we tried to get uh some black writers and more black um readers you know sometimes we started covering artists that weren't uh the hardcore blues that the white audience liked there, mm -hmm. there were artists like uh bobby blue bland and little milton uh, esther phillips uh, Lattimore, uh, those kind of artists were more popular with the black audience at, the, at that point. And uh, mm -hmm. we started covering more of them because we felt that was an important part of the scene too. And hopefully that would get us more black readership, but uh, still the readership is primarily white. So interesting. So even the segregation issues and all the different cultural aspects of the music, you guys didn't really have a challenge or necessarily a hurdle of getting, getting that going then. No, we didn't feel that 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 that, seg that kind of segregation was affecting us. You know, um, we were more trying to get into the black side of things. You know. Yeah, sure, and, sure. And that that was harder you know, because a lot of the albums, I and mean, if you look at the album covers, a lot of the black the albums that were selling mostly to black artists didn't have much in the way of liner notes, but the artists. The albums that were produced for white collectors had extensive liner notes and biographies. So, uh, you know, there's just kind of uh, different expectations, I guess. Um, most, I think a lot of people are probably more familiar with the Chicago style of blues. Uh, I've kind of gotten into uh, the Mississippi Hill Country Blues, you know, uh, you know, through the North, Missis North Mississippi All-Stars and then listening to them talk about Arl Burnside and, and Junior Kimbrough. Um, did you, uh, did you spend time writing about those artists or, or going down to the juke joints in, in that area for that kind of blues? Um, yeah. One of the first things I started doing was um, I was in Chicago, but when I discovered uh, that so many of the blues artists were from Mississippi, I started, and I, my family was still in Mobile, so when I'd go home, Mobile, we, I would drive through Mississippi and sometimes uh, and start looking for blues and uh, went to see Sam Myers in Jackson, Mississippi on Ferris Street, which is the historic uh, African-American neighborhood there. And um, so, um, yeah, but, but I, so I started going to Mississippi fairly regularly and sometimes TV crews would come and they would want to film in Chicago or they'd want to go down to Mississippi. And so one time I went to Mississippi with them and uh, we filmed R.L. Burnside. R.L. gave me my first drink of moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> he had it mixed with 7-Up and I never had it before. So I thought that's what it tastes like. <laughs> so I tried it later without 7-Up. I was in for a shock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I loved R.L. And, and uh, I used to go to Junior's place too. And after I moved wow. to Mississippi, you know, and, uh, 
And I saw RL a number of times and interviewed him. There's a documentary called Blues Story uh, that you might want to check out. There's, um, I was able to uh, do a lot of the interviews for that documentary and RL is in that, that program. Wow. But he um, was great. Yeah, that, that Hill Country Blues really caught on, you know, and it hadn't really even been recognized as a separate style mm -hmm. much before that. Uh, you know, any particular artist that that stood out to you more or, or someone that you learned from that you had a higher appreciation of any like stories that they told you that that you would, you know, put up on a higher level or I don't know how to say it, you know, who's, <laughs> who, you know, who has really like left an impression on you, you know, not only musically, but like when you talk to them and heard about their stories. Yeah, well, there's. Well, musically, Otis Rush was, um, I feel my life changed after I heard Otis Rush play in person, you know, at Pepper's Lounge on 43rd Street in Chicago. I just had never heard anything close to that. And um, I mean, he was such a brilliant guitar player and singer and sang and played with such passion and uh, creativity. Uh, to me, when he was his best, there wasn't anyone close to him. You're not Buddy Guy or anyone else, you know, B.B. King even. Wow. <laughs> and, um, and so he was a real inspiration as far as the music goes. And uh, But uh, for stories, I, I was always appreciative that the artists wanted to tell, not only to tell their stories, but some of them wanted to make sure that we got it right. So there were some older piano players in Chicago, Sonny Land Slim and Little Brother Montgomery and Blind John Davis. And uh, sometimes they would uh, they would comment on on stuff that uh, the, we, we had written and and because uh, you know we didn't really know what we were doing you know we were we, we were newbies you know and all we were doing is is trying to present what they told us and and people like them and also Jimmy Dawkins a guitar player and Eddie Shaw and. Junior Wells, uh, a lot of them were really helpful to us, you know, so we appreciate it. And Willie Dixon, Willie Dixon ended up writing a column for the magazine. So were you, were you around like when, or happened to be close to or hear about, you know, the times when, you know, like the Stones had come down, they recorded, you know, some of the Sticky Fingers at Muscle Shoals, you know, and, and you know, how reverent those guys were to the older blues artists. I mean, did you come around that scene at all or, or see any of that? You know, whether it, not even only Stones, but anybody from 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 the UK. I didn't hear, uh, I didn't really have much personal contact. You know, I, but I certainly appreciated the Stones' attitude toward the whole thing. They always wanted to give credit to the, to the creators to the originators, you know, and they brought Helen Wolf on Shindig, which I wish I had seen, but they, uh, I watched Shindig all the time and I didn't see that program. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, a rock and roll show back in the 60s now, but um, later the, uh, I don't know if you know, the, the lead singer from Manfred Mann, John uh, Paul Jones, Paul Jones was, uh, he became a 
he was a big blues fan. You know, you don't think of Manfred Mann as a blues band either, but they did some. And, but he was a big blues fan. And later he had a radio show in England. So I did meet him. He came over to, to Mississippi one time and uh, interviewed me. <laughs> and, uh, but the, uh, I guess in, in that area, the, the, the act that I got close to, well, they, weren't, they weren't from the UK, but uh, Billy Gibbons and ZZ Top. Um, he contacted me at, uh, when I was in Mississippi oh. and wanted to go see the house where Muddy Waters had grown up. Or what year so, was that? That was 1987 when we met. And uh, I've stayed in touch with him on and off ever since. But uh, That was like peak ZZ Top, 87. Yeah. And uh, so we, Billy came, I had, had moved to Clarksdale at that point and Billy came down and um, we went out to the to the cabin where Muddy Waters had grown up, but it wasn't uh, the, the basic frame was still there, but there was a lot of lumber laying around. It wasn't really a livable house anymore. So he took some wood from the house and had it made into guitars, <laughs> and he used those as uh, fundraisers for the Delta Blues Museum, which was in Clarksdale. And, um, because the Sid Graves, who founded the Delta Blues Museum, had uh, found out that, that he was in town with me, and uh, we went to meet him. And so um, ZZ Top developed this relationship with uh, with the Delta Blues Museum in Clarksdale. And then, oh, well, I did. Uh, I forgot that back then I had, but later Robert Plant came to, to Clarksdale when I was there, and he also came. Uh, more recently when I was working with the Mississippi Blues Trail. This was in 2009. And um, he came to the dedication of one of the Blues Trail markers where, where I was there too. And we talked a while. Uh, he was very friendly. Everybody, uh, a lot of the, uh, the older white blues fans or white music fans who were around were just impressed with how how nice he was, and how easy he was to talk to, to every, you know, to everybody. So uh, he, he was one that I did get to. That second uh, Page and Plan album was Walking into Clarksdale, I, that's if I right. remember correctly, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. He, so he became a regular visitor to Clarksdale, but this was mostly after I left that um, he developed a, a good friendship with uh, a lady who was reported on blues for the newspaper there, Fanny Mayfield, and she helped uh, show him around the, some of the blues spots of, of the Delta. Well, he's, he got a start, like, as a teen singing blues music, right? He and Bonham were playing together, and Paige found out about him and checked him out. I remember my Led Zeppelin lore correctly. Yeah, right. He was, he was a blues fan, and he's told me he'd played harmonica and heard Sonny Boy Williamson. Sonny Boy was the great uh, American blues harmonica player who toured England and actually recorded with the Yardbirds and with the Animals. Uh, so he was really important in uh, bringing that link of the blues and rock together. I mean, the first two Zeppelin albums were pretty much rehashed blues, right? They took blues songs and kind of put their own spin on what do you what do you think of Led Zeppelin? Like, give me give me your impression of Led Zeppelin. I was at on, I was at a concert on their first tour. They played at the Kinetic Playground in Chicago, which was the Chicago's equivalent of the Fillmore 
you know, mm -hmm. psychedelic ballroom. So I was really into it at, at the time. Uh, and uh, like I said, and I really liked Dream and some of those bands too. Um, you know, I, I kind of lost interest in, in that the more I got into the Muddy Waters and uh, well, they went away <laughs> from blues too, right? I mean, yeah, starting with right. their fourth album, they were doing more rock and more experimental stuff. But those first two albums, and then you take "Since I've Been Loving You" off three, which is a fantastic blues song, right? Those that was like the core of what they were doing. Yeah, they were, and Fleetwood Mac was a blues band when they started. Yeah, yeah. that's my favorite version of, of Fleetwood Mac. That Brian, that now this goes off one of my lightning round questions. The whole Fleetwood Mac <laughs> thing's off, off the list. <laughs> 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 yeah, they yeah they recorded a blues album in Chicago with a lot of the uh, the blues artists, and of course they had been doing it, recording it on their own. In fact, it, it, at one point, you know, before I before I got into it, I I mean I thought that was kind of the ultimate blues <laughs> until I heard Elmore James. <laughs> so I'm reading here on Blues Foundation. It's got a, a you know piece here. Uh, about you know your experiences with stuff but it just you know so you worked on committees that launched the Chicago Blues Festival the King Biscuit Blues Festival the Sunflower River Blues Festival the WC Handy Blues Awards and the Mississippi Blues Trail that I'm like I can't speak enough how impressed I am that you're on a committee that started all these things I mean can you put that into words at all well I was I guess I was in the right place at the right time for some of that to happen and you know, I, I won't say I was the or, prime organizer of much of that, but I was, I was somebody that uh, I was lucky enough to be called on to participate. You know? So um, it, it was fun. You know, the, uh, I guess the one that I had the most to do with uh, actually starting was the Sunflower River Blues Festival in Clarkstown, which is still going on. The uh, merchants of Clarkstown wanted to have a, a blues festival because they thought it would attract shoppers from the area to come shop in the local stores. Of course, what uh, I tried to point out to them was that it would attract tourists from all over the country and all over the world, actually. And a lot of people in Clarksdale didn't believe that at the time, but they saw that it was true. And <laughs> people from Norway and, and Japan started showing up. Wow. wow. You know, one thing I've always observed that blues has survived every music trend, every rock and roll music trend that's come and gone. Blues has always survived through all that. Um, and I'm trying to think, you know, how many were there any real blues artists that 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 were uh, like these rock artists that were you know selling million copies of records? You know, I mean, I can only guess maybe on an FM radio you know, way is, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan and maybe George Thorogood, but, uh, you know, is, can you put that into words too? Like that, the whole thing that blues has survived all this stuff. And, and now, especially because since there's not this big, huge music industry, you know, rock artists, you know, some that have been around for a long time, kind of like complain about that. The newer ones don't, but I would imagine for blues artists, that's just par for the course. I mean, so can you talk about how blues has survived all this every music trend that's come and gone. Yeah, blues has survived. You know, it's the foundation of a lot of the music, other music that we hear from rock to hip hop. But, um, and it's, 
from for the most part of his history has been kind of underground at the, at the lower level of the entertainment business as far as the money goes and the publicity. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of timeless music. Um, I kind of liken it to country music in a way, mm-hmm. you know, country has been called the white man's blues, um, but it kind of expresses those basic human emotions and and you know some some of it's topical having to do with the times and some of it's not some of it's it's just kind of timeless so there's you know people have said there's always going to be blues as long as there's men and women trying to get along and not getting along <laughs> there'll be blues because that's what a lot of the blues songs are about <laughs> you mentioned uh country music being timeless too and one of the goals of this podcast is really to hopefully get maybe a couple of people to think a little bit deeper about what Southern rock is. And to me, it was born in, you know, the sessions that Dwayne Allman played with Wilson Pickett down at Muscle Shoals. And Greg Allman later said, you know, Southern rock is just rock rock. So it, but I think it's an amalgamation of, you know, from when they said the blues had a baby and they call it rock and roll. And then that kind of cross bred back with rock and soul and blues and gospel. Um, did you ever pay any attention to, you know, the Southern rock artists as well and find any kind of relation? I know certainly the Allman brothers tip their, their, their cap to the blues a lot. Um, any, any that you uh, paid any attention to? Well, yeah, I mean, the Allman brothers were the, the prime example, I guess, but, um, you know, by the time Southern rock had become a phenomenon, I had really gotten into Chicago blues and Delta blues. So I, I didn't keep up with that as much uh, as I had with the British blues, you know, but it's, but like you say, the, uh, the Southern rock artists like the Allman brothers, you know, they drew from blues and country and gospel and soul. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I even read, which I I didn't realize that that they first heard slide guitar, which is a historic blues technique. They first heard that on a Jeff Beck album. So, you know, they were listening to the British guys, too. So all those things came to play in Southern Rock. But, uh, yeah, blues is certainly one of the strongest foundations. Well, I think, you know, especially back earlier on, you know, that there was a time when the authentic forms of country and rock and roll and blues and gospel would all cross paths and they weren't stuck into their own lanes the way they would become later on. And I've always been so fascinated with that, you know, and I'm, that's another thing I try to emphasize, you know, that hopefully we're getting back to those days where, you know, people will focus more on the authentic, authentic styles of music instead of the, you know, the, the pop FM styles of this music. Right, because, the you know, blues, b- before Southern Rock came along, blues was influencing other kinds of, of similar music. You know, if you listen to Rockabilly, Mm-hmm. Rockabilly is very blues based. Oh yeah, and and Elvis, you know, of course, Elvis made some yep. of the blues songs famous when he recorded them, and um, before that, you know, Western swing artists like Bob Wills. If you listen to that, listen to them, uh, you know, they're considered in the country vein, but they did a whole lot of blues, and they were, um, you know, rural country uh, blues uh, white guitar players who were recording in the country field, but they were, you know, blues has been a part of that for a long time too, from, from Jimmy Rogers uh, to Hank Williams, 
Um, so, you know, blues and, and country have interacted a lot as, as well as blues and rock and roll. Have you, can, have you uh, uh, continued to uh, follow or observe or beat into the newer blues artists as time has gone along? Or was there a time where, like you talk about how you're, you know, so committed to Chicago style blues. Uh, is there a point where, do you still, do you listen to newer artists or was there like a cutoff point for you at all? Or you know, do you have as much respect for them or any new ones that you, newer ones that you think are great? Oh yeah, I like to try to keep up with the newer artists. I think it's important that the, uh, the, the newer artists who come along get supported because it's, you know, in a lot of ways it's harder than ever for blues artists to make it these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, Living Blues, uh, regularly covers a lot of the younger artists. I mean, uh, I don't have much to do with the magazine now. I'm still listed as a founding editor, but I don't really contribute that much or put it together. I write articles once in a while and do some consultation. But uh, so I read articles about artists in there that I've never heard of that have come along. And uh, Blues and Rhythm magazine in England has also profiles a lot of the younger artists. So there's there's artists like um, uh, Kingfish from Clarksdale is the most, mm -hmm. the most, has gotten the most publicity. He's a young young guy who's a really hot guitar player. But there are others like uh, Marquise Knox from St. Louis and Joey Say from Chicago, and, um, Quan Willis from Georgia. There, uh, There's a whole generation of, of newer uh, blues artists coming up and I think that's great. Do you think, uh, I've heard people talk about like blues is more than uh, like a, a form of music, more than a genre of music. Some people will say, well, to play blues, you've had to, had experienced some level of trauma. Uh, do you, do you, do you agree with that? Or do you think it's, you know, also just a genre of music that, you know, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've heard some guys be like real, like, Hey man, they should be playing blues if, you know, especially like when guys, when Johnny Lang and Kenny Wayne Shepherd came along, they got some flack for being so young. But uh, what's your take on that? Like, should you have experienced trauma to play blues or is it just okay for whoever? Well, I mean, I think anybody who's a good musician can learn how to play the blues. You know, the uh, whether you convey the feeling that the original blues artist had is very difficult though. Uh, Living Blues created a lot of controversy uh, from with our editorial policy in the 1970s because we published an editorial that uh, Paul Guerin wrote, uh, which said that you know there is blues wasn't to be defined acoustically. It wasn't how it sounded. It's where it came from, and it came from the African American culture, and it came from specifically from racial oppression. So in that sense, um, you know, the blues, this comes from other, other areas or other, other origins is not the same kind of blues, at least, that the blues artists from Mississippi and Chicago thought. Right on. So, um, like I said, now you're not contributing to the magazine as much. Uh, 
what do you see as a future for blues is something's going to keep on living on and keep on going forever what's your take on it now somehow it seems to have survived you know when when we started the magazine um people were saying the blues was dead uh, well 1970 in 1970 oh actually long, <laughs> before, long before that uh, 52 years later yeah well big bill Bruzy, who was one of the great blues artists uh he went to Europe in the 1950s and told people that the blues was dead, <laughs> was dying, you know. And of course, that that was kind of to promote himself, so he'd be the last of the kind, you know. But uh, in 19, yeah, 1970, uh, there was a lot of talk that you know blues was dead, and you know it was going to go away, and and that's one of the reasons that Bruce Iglauer actually came out with the name Living Blues for the magazine because uh, we wanted to. To emphasize that it was still a vital music, and there were still lots of people playing it, and and that you know it's still that kind of theme comes up every once in a while, or probably all the time, that blues is dead or that it's um, um, anachronistic or that it's not relevant anymore. But uh, I say that about rock music, and I've been saying that about rock music for decades as well. Right, right. So, so it, but you know, there's ways to make it relevant. You know, there used to be you know, blues was about the cotton crop, and then there was, then I started writing blues about computer took my job. <laughs> <laughs> Maurice John Vaughn wrote that song. Oh. Um, so, the, the, so blues just seems to, ha to hang on because, like, is it, it's. It can be applied to so many situations, but it's it's definitely, you know, a, a part of life. Um, Willie Dixon used to define it as the facts of life, and so there's and like I said, the the male female relationships is a primary thing, and the underlying meaning of the blues, uh, according to some of the artists I've met, like Willie King. Uh, was that it used to be like a secret code. You couldn't come out and say, boss man's not treating me right, but you could say, my woman's not treating me right. And it was kind of the hidden meaning or there was, you know, words that, words or phrases that uh, wouldn't be obvious to outside culture that were used that, were, that was, uh, Kind of uh, forming the blues as a protest music. So I, we got to talk about Rooster Blues, you know, the, the record label. How, how did you get to starting that? What did that take? Did that all involve? Well, I had been going to re recording sessions with our uh, Delmark Records and a little bit with Alligator. And there were sometimes there were other record companies would come to town and and want to record artists. And after a while, but it, there was kind of a lull in uh, during the 70s as far as uh, recording the blues was going on. And we're seeing so many artists who were, who needed to have records out. And that's what a lot of them would ask us when we would interview with the magazine, they would say, hey, you know any record companies? Or you know any good booking agents, you know? and mm -hmm. um, so we finally decided, uh, Amy and I decided to start uh, this label with Mick and Silla Huggins, who were 
the British blues fans, they had come over to, to uh, explore the blues and uh, I took a trip down south with them and we just started discussing that and uh, they actually put up the first thousand dollars, I think, to get the maggot, to get the, uh, the label started and I recorded Eddie Clearwater. He was the first uh, blues artist that I recorded because I thought I had been, I had known him for a long time and I had seen uh, how good he was and what he was capable of doing and what he had never come close to doing on a record. Uh, so that's what I always tried to, to do was, was capture uh, what made the artist different and also try to, as much as possible, try to keep him to make the records sound like they sounded when they performed, not to overproduce it with him. So any specific <laughs> techniques that you used I mean, you were in there doing the recording and producing and... Well, yeah, they call it producing, but I kind of left them alone. I kind of picked artists that had their stuff together for the most part. Uh, and I could well, I could go in and, and just, and you know, I helped pick the songs and sometimes the musicians, but usually it would just be a working band from, from Chicago and, and later from Mississippi too. That I had heard, and I wanted, to, and I wanted to to transfer what I had heard them play in a club onto a record, and, but to do it with studio quality. Um, so you know, I was kind of a non-producer in a way. I I had a few ideas every once in a while, but and I try to guide things, but I, you know, I wasn't taking an active hand and say, play this note or play that note. Or, uh, you know, so uh, I let. I trusted the artists to be their own producers to a large extent. I've always had the opinion that that blues really is a living entity and that it it oftentimes uh, wants to attract people rather than being highly promoted. You know, it seems to live by attracting people instead of trying to like recruit, whether it's fans or musicians or whatnot. Um, does that, when I say that, does that make any sense? Would there be like truth to that? It's, it lives more by attracting people than it yeah, being think, promoted to death? I think that, yeah, the blues, blues, artists, blues artists try to find artists who identify with what they're singing. You know, they, you know, with with black audience, there was used to be a, a lot of signifying, um, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you're right about that, you know. Um, you know, you listen to some of the old B.B. King records uh, where he had a live audience, you know, the women were just screaming for him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, I think that's what appeals to blues uh, uh, to a lot of people, you know, no matter what culture you're from, is that, you know, the artist may be singing about some predicament with his woman or with his bills or with life in general, and you can identify it. I felt that too, and I think I think that's one of the great appeals of the blues. And it's not necessarily a a monetary thing. Mm -hmm. It's not. Yeah. Well, Jason, you got you some lightning round questions geared up I there. I do, but but before I hop into those with Jim, um, you have been elected into the Blues Hall of Fame there in Memphis, Tennessee, back in. Was that 2002? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, the Blues Hall of Fame um, and the Handy Award, WC Handy Awards were 
two things that I helped get started too um, back in 1980 when they, they first had them. And Living Blues actually conducted the first uh, balloting for the, for the Handy Awards and the Blues Hall of Fame. And uh, the Blues Hall of Fame was originally just for, for artists, you know, and so the first artists, I think, um, elected, I think Muddy Waters got the most votes, I believe, the first year. Muddy Waters and B.B. Uh, King, Robert Johnson, and Howlin' Wolf, they were kind of at the top. Uh, and then later on, uh, the uh, Blues Foundation started, uh, added this category for what they call non-performers at first, and now it's, now it's been changed to individuals who were involved in either business or academics or media, whatever. Um, so there were, uh, I think, Bill and Leonard Chess were the first uh, people inducted in that category. They were the brothers who owned the Chess record label in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Bruce Iglauer was elected and Bob Kester from Delmark Records. And Dick Waterman, who's a one of the most important booking agents who, who booked the blues. Um, so yeah, I was honored to be uh, elected in 2002. And so uh, there was just a small banquet at the time. It's a little bit larger event now, but there was a banquet and at, at, the, at that banquet I, I talked about, you, you'd asked if I was a, wanted to be a musician. I decided not, so I decided, well, I said, I guess my decision to be a non-performer worked out because I got elected to the Blues Hall of Fame. <laughs> Whereas as a performer, I probably never would have made it. That's a good point. Well, Jim, if you'd, if you'd be so kind, we do a kind of a fun thing at the end of our interviews with just some random or silly questions if, you, if you'd like to participate with us. Uh, I'll try, but if I don't come out good, you can cut it out, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible not to come out good. All right. What's the first album you remember getting? Albert King, born on oh, the first album yeah. of, of any kind? Any any kind. Oh. Not blues. You know, I, I remember the first 45s because when I started buying records, um, it was, I was in the third grade and, and we had moved from Memphis to Mobile and I get, and we just gotten a record player and all we had around the house was things like soundtracks from Oklahoma or more symphonic music or thing. Victory at Sea was one of the big ones. <laughs> Sink the Bismarck. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, but when I went to the record store, um, First things I bought were Elvis Presley, Don't Be Cruel, and Fats Domino, Blueberry Hill. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And then there was a third. You got you got to have th three records for the price of two, and I didn't know a third record to get. So the, the record, record clerk, who was an elderly white lady, probably just middle-aged, but she seemed old to me at the time, <laughs> she recommended some inspirational record you know with the religious theme which, which was so good you don't even remember what it was <laughs> <I'd rather not> <laughs> <say>. <laughs> fair enough fair enough uh, do, you, do you drink coffee do i drink coffee yes yeah how do you take it with cream and sugar or with sweetener, right. sweetener and sugar sweetener, sweetener and, and cream cream okay all right uh do you eat ice cream yes i like what's your favorite Chocolate, but also like mint. 
Okay. Brian, we always get these, like the classics, you know, mm -hmm. the ice creams, always the classics. I'm always amazed by that. I'm happy because I like the, I like the classics as well. What's the first concert you remember going to? Dave Clark five in Mobile. Wow. Uh, yeah. I had, I had one of my first dates and my, I couldn't drive at the time. So my father drove us, but that was great. It was the Dave Clark five. Um, and the Shangri-Las were the opening act. Who'd you take? Linda Vickery. <laughs> and, and I always liked her. And then she met some college guy and got engaged. And I, I haven't been able to keep up with her since then. You know what? Her <laughs> loss because you are in the Blues Hall of Fame. <laughs> what is the what is the best model of guitar to play the blues on? Well, you know, not being a guitar player, I couldn't give a personal preference, but, uh, you know, from the guitar players I've heard, both Fenders and Gibsons. Uh, yeah, like Strat or Les Paul, like typically you see. Do you have a preferred sound of one or one or the other when you hear them? No, not really. Um, you know, I've known guitar players who really didn't care what they were playing you know some of the blues guys you know they just pick up anything and make it sound right <laughs> those are those are good musicians that is not me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if i've never really listened to the blues before we're gonna go through a series of questions here um i need you to give me some advice so i've never really listened to blues i don't know a lot about the blues music what would be three records you'd tell me to get to listen to just to start me off my blues journey? Um, well, I think B.B. King, one of the, the, the best B.B. King, or there's a, a great live album called Live at the Regal. Uh, but there's, you know, a lot of best of compilations and probably the same for the best of Muddy Waters, and um, you know, I suppose I'll throw Robert Johnson in there. You know, okay. that's, that's yeah. the basis, basis of so much that came afterwards. You know? And I, this, I had, since I haven't mentioned him, uh, Charlie Patton is someone that I'm I'm really into now. I, I wasn't at first because if you try to listen to it, I remember that there was a clerk at the Jazz Record Mart in Chicago who played me a Charlie Patton record when I was first getting into the blues. And I, it just, just didn't hit me. You know, it was first, it was the sound quality wasn't very good and you could, it's hard to understand what he was singing about. But after I moved to Mississippi where he was from and started listening to it again, I realized he was like, he was, he was the ultimate, you know, yeah, I, rate, I rate him the best now. Uh, he was kind of the, the leading figure in the early part of Delta Blues before Robert Johnson. But I wouldn't recommend that to someone who's starting out. Because <laughs> the quality is not really good. It's not really accessible. Right. Yeah. And Robert Johnson was really accessible. I think that was one of yeah. the key, yeah. keys to him. Was you could understand it. And it also laid the basis for other musicians to, to build on. Um, you, you can definitely hear Robert Johnson in, in Muddy Waters and Elmore James. In the, in the rock and roll bands, you know, the Rolling Stones. So um, I, I'd recommend those. 
If I had asked you, hey, what are three blues songs I should listen to that that also, I don't know a lot about the blues, they'd really ex expose me to, it'd be great starter songs. Um, Double Trouble by Otis Rush. Um, it's hard to pick through. <laughs> <Just certain. laughs> um, Thrill is Gone, B.B. King. I mean, like, you know, Thrill is Gone is a good mainstream. one. Um, yeah, I mean, Thrill is Gone was an important crossover repertoire. And, um, mm -hmm. But I didn't write, I think it's one of his, his best. I mean, I was, I just, I, one of the things I still do is I'm in the mail or record business. So I, um, I auction records on eBay. And I, I've done that since I got started, actually. That's part of what supplemented Living Blues' income enough for us to keep going was selling records. So I've been selling a 78 collection lately, of uh, 78 RPM records. Wow. And, um, and so there was some B.B. King in there. And I listened to the B.B. King from the 50s. It's just amazing. Um, I mean, it's... He was, like, he was like on fire. I mean, he was great in the later years when those thrills gone came along. But when he was young and was wailing and was playing some hot guitar, he, he was something else. <laughs> um, so yeah, there had to be some BB King in there. I like uh, actually, I'd say what why I sing the blues by BB King because that gives you some background about why people did sing the blues. And it, it had a, a nice beat to it. Um, and uh, I always liked uh, Slim Harpo, too, moniker um, player from Louisiana. Uh, Scratch My Back is a, is a nice, funky song. It's easy to, to get into, and people might not recognize it as blues, but it is. So I, I'd say he's a good candidate. Okay, good three starters blues. Okay, what is a good un, undiscovered gem blues album that we we all like blues here? We're blues aficionados. Tell us an album that we need to know about that we probably don't. Well, <laughs> I've got so many of those. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. first couple that come to your mind. Um, well, I mean, I suppose you know people know Albert King now, but. He, you know, he's not as prominent as he and and the consciousness as he once was. So I definitely say that 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 first album that I got, Born Under a Bad Sign, on Stax Records. Um, but like I said, that's not really an obscure album. Um, there's a nice one I've always liked by a guitar player. Uh, in Chicago called Maxwell Street Jimmy on, on Electra Records. He was kind of a, a character who played on this this outdoor market called Maxwell Street where they would have blues bands set up every Sunday on the street corners. Uh, but this is kind of an acoustic album that's much different. Um, I like that one a lot. What non-musician has done the most for blues music, in your opinion? Um, probably Bruce Iglauer. Uh, he founded Alligator Records and made it the, 
the leading uh, independent blue, or leading blues label in the world, independent or not. Yeah, so it's a good choice. Yeah. All right, a couple multiple choice questions here. Rock bands that do blues music, pick your favorite out of, out of this crew. We're going to go British version first. Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, or the Yardbirds? The ones I like the best? Yeah. Who do you pick out of those three? Oh, Rolling Stones. Okay. We're going to go American version. Aerosmith, Allman Brothers, or ZZ Top? No. About the same to me, but ZZ Top, I guess. Okay. okay. <laughs> if you had to choose between ZZ Top or the Stones, who are you choosing? Stones. Good choice. Brian, Brian's very excited. Brian, <laughs> you, you can see all the Stone stuff he has. What uh, is I, wanted, stone... I wanted to go back, go back to yeah, the, go back to your to the other question of what non-musician has done the most. I, I really should give that to Bob Kester. He was the founder of Domart Records and the and the Jazz Record Mart. He was important in the foundation of, of Living Blues. He actually loaned us money to get the magazine started. Oh, wow. And Bruce, and Bruce Iglauer worked for him when he started. So it kind of passed from uh, from Bob to Bruce Iglauer and the rest of us. So those two guys were really instrumental in, in, in getting the blues out in kind of the modern modern world. Right. And, and there were some, some writers who were pretty important, too, like Paul Oliver and Sam Charter and people yeah. Now, now I lost the question I was going to oh, ask. You, well, you, oh, okay. You were just saying that. Oh, blue, that uh, Stones. Song. What is the best Blues Stone song? Um, King Bee is pretty good. I like King Bee. Uh, I don't know. Uh, some of them didn't work as well. Yeah. I just want to make love to you. I don't didn't think that was came close to Muddy. And... and uh, Uh, some of them, um, some of them the Stones wrote, you know, weren't blues per se, but they had that feel to it. Some of the early stuff, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I could listen to Satisfaction forever. <laughs> Still could. <laughs> I mean, lots of hits, those guys, man. Just lots, lots of great albums from top to bottom, too. Yeah. And, uh. This could be the last time. That was a good one. Uh, uh, time is on my side. Which is kind of a soul, kind of blues, you know. For sure, for sure. I like that one a lot. What modern band do you think that's not a blues band, but does that, I guess, represents or, or blues best? I can think of, like, you know, there's a lot. You've got... Um, like the government mules going on, Marcus King, you got all, you know, you have a bunch of bands out there right now. Who do you think really, without being a straight up blues band, really, really gets to feel the blues or the spirit of the blues? Well, I think the North Mississippi All-Stars because they were, they were so close, close to the, the Hill Country artists, you know, they, they understand what it's all about, you know, and, and they, they, you know, lived and worked with those guys so uh, you know I, I give them credit 
Have, have you talked to Have you talked to Luther and Cody ever? Oh, well, a little bit, yeah. Cool. Uh, uh, but yeah, I never spent a whole lot of time with them. But um, yeah, they're they're good guys. They're from the area, ish, you know. Yeah. <laughs> North Mississippi, which is a big area, but it, North Mississippi is the hills and, and, the, and the part where they are, and then it's also the Delta over further west. Who do you think is the greatest slide guitar player? James. James, okay. I mean, technically, I'm, I'm sure he couldn't do what, what some others could, but he kind of set the pattern that, that everyone else copied and him and Robert Nighthawk too. I'm, I'm a big Robert Nighthawk. And Tampa Red, a lot of their, a lot of what they did came from Tampa Red earlier. Uh, Tampa Red, someone I've, I'm hoping to do a book on, uh, hoping to do some, several books, but maybe I'll get to them, maybe I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I, Tampa Red's a new one for me. I'm, I'm interested about Tampa Red here. What was the first article that you got published? I think you said it was in Rolling Stone. Well, I, I wrote for the student newspaper at Northwestern, uh, the Daily Northwestern. So at first I was writing about sports. So I wrote- Oh, really? Yeah, so I wrote, I covered the intramural sports and I did some of the baseball and basketball game. And, uh, and then I started, then when I got into the blues, um, I think I first, there was an article that had appeared in the Chicago Tribune, I think, about the Chicago sound, and it defined the Chicago sound as uh, the shadows of night and the crying songs, the Buckinghams, and I wrote, well, there's another Chicago sound. The real Chicago sound is Muddy Waters and Helen Willie Dixon. <laughs> I, that was the first article I wrote, I think, for the Daily Northwestern. Then there was a, a little fanzine called the New Haven Rock Press. The uh, editor, who was, I think he was a high school kid at the time, had gotten a hold of us through Bob Kester. And uh, I reviewed a first blues festival I went to, which is the Memphis Country Blues Festival in 1969. Um, in addition to people like Fred McDowell and Bucket White, Johnny Winter played there. Uh, reviewed that, and then the I think the Rolling Stone might have been the next one. I I went to Pepper's Lounge and I just kind of had written that a short article for a journalism class, and Pepper's was um, on Forty Third Street, which was one of the places that everybody told me you shouldn't go or you get killed. <laughs> but obviously <laughs> I survived and <laughs> never, never had any, any incidents there. Um, but I described the scene there and misidentified a couple of the artists, but uh, Rolling Stone didn't know and I didn't know at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they published that. Uh, and then uh, I wrote a few things for Rolling Stone after that, but they started only asking me for obituaries and blues singers died. So mm -hmm. I told them, unless you want to write, write, cover some living blues artists, I don't want to do this. Hence the Living Blues Magazine. You're sick of writing about dead dudes. 
would be a good book to read about blues music that you could recommend? Um, there's one called Nothing But the Blues, which I, I did write a chapter about it in that book. It's about the blues revival. Um, okay. That chapter is. But it, it has uh, chapters by different authors of each chapter, and it covers everything from, you know, the, the Delta Blues to the Piedmont Blues, which is the air blues from uh, the East Coast, the Southeast, through Chicago Blues and, and Rock and Roll, and it also has a chapter on the early uh, White Blues played by country artists, and, uh, and, and brings it up, up through well, it's, you know, 30 years old now, I guess, but it brought it up to date up to that point. But it, it's a good overview of, of a lot of different kinds of blues. Okay, I'll have to check that one out. What about a documentary? Can you recommend a good documentary about blues music? Um, well, like I said, the, the one that I worked on uh, was called Blues Story and it's uh, it's all in the artist's words, which is much, which is what makes it different. It's not a bunch of us talking about the blues. It's that it's the, uh, the the artist who who created it, sang it to begin with. And, um, it was produced by uh, Jay Levy, who, believe it or not, is Weird Al Yankovic's manager. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But he's a big blues fan, and he and invited me to, to come along and, and do some of the interviews. Um, he said I was a good interviewer because I kept my mouth shut when the artists were, <laughs> were answering the questions. You know, I didn't try to interject everything. <laughs> and so we got to interviewed uh, Buddy Guy, Rufus Thomas, Ruth Brown, Arnold Burnside, Honey Boy Edwards. Um, and some of the last interviews, I guess, that ever got done with Lowell Fulton and Charles Brown, who were both pretty ill at the time. Uh, Henry Townsend from St. Louis. Um, so it, and it's all, like I said, it, and Jay edited it so that the whole thing is in their words. You know, there's no narration. It, it's all them telling the story of the blues. So that's what I think makes that special. You know, not, not that I was there, but just the, the way that the, uh, the story flows from them. I'm gonna have to check that one out, Brian. I saw you writing a note on that one. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah you can you, uh, you can call it up on YouTube, I think now, or it's it's available as a DVD. Oh, very cool. From so Shout it's easy Factory. to find. Yeah, from Shout Factory. Yeah. Oh, Shout Factory. Yeah, they do a lot of classic stuff, reissues and classic. Yeah, uh, they got a lot of good good catalog. They do. All right. Uh, what's your favorite place to see a concert? I always pref prefer the juke joints to the concerts, you know. <laughs> uh, but um, and you know, I've been to lots, lots of different concerts. Uh, I don't know if I have a favorite concert venue, but I like finding the juke joints that were kind of out of the way and. Uh, there was used, used to be a place near Greenville, Mississippi called the Tin House, which was like a, a tin, tin roof shack out in the middle of a cotton field. You had to walk on planks through the mud to get to it. And a guitar player named Booba Barnes, who I recorded, played there. And that was just the, something that 
exceptional <laughs> to be in a place like that. I love it, man. That's the first time we got a, a juke joint, Brian, on that mm -hmm. answer. Yep, that's awesome. What is one artist that that you always wanted to see live but you never had a chance to? Oh, well, if, if, at the time I got into it, um, the ones who were still around that I could have seen right at, at that point, I think Slim Harpo and Lonnie Johnson. Um, of course, you know, I would have liked to have seen Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson and Robert Nighthawk, but they, they, they were before, you know, mm -hmm. before that, Little Walter, uh, you know, Memphis Minnie. She was great too. Uh, yeah, there were some artists, some of the older artists who were still around when Living Blue started. Like Memphis Minnie, she was in a nursing home in Memphis. Uh, and uh, Gus Cannon from the, uh, the jug band scene of Memphis who did the song Walk Right In that became a big hit for the rooftop singers. Uh, some of those artists are still around, but I didn't get to them because in a way, I thought um, they had been, you know, other other researchers had tried to interview them, uh, thought that had been done. So I tried to look for some of the artists who, who hadn't been covered so well, and Tampa Red was one of them. So I did get to meet him. I'm going to, Tampa Red's come up a couple of times now, Brian. We're going to have to look for Tampa Red. All right, do. last question. Last question for you, Jim. This is a tough one, okay? Give us an artist or a song we'd be very surprised to hear that you like. <laughs> this is your guilty pleasure question. <laughs> um, well, I don't know if it's a surprise. The, the train kept a rolling. Um, I like all the verses of it. The, the original was by... Uh, uh, kind of a jump blues artist named Tiny Bradshaw, and then I, you know, I got familiar with it when the when the uh, the Yardbirds did it, mm -hmm. and it's in the movie Blow Up, which is an even better version of it with uh, Jeff. Is that Beck. John Travolta? No. Blow out. Blow up. Blow up. Oh, blow up. Yeah, they're on. Yeah, you know, do it. They're doing it live there, and uh, I think. Uh, Jeff Beck and Lapner in there is that time. Um, so that's what uh, that one. I really like that one. But then I heard there's a rockabilly version of it um, by Johnny Burnett from Memphis um, with Paul Burleson on guitar, and that's mm -hmm. just that just knocked me out. That's even better. You know? So. Uh, I, I like a lot of rockabilly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Rockabilly's come up a couple times, and so rock. Do you have a favorite rockabilly artist or band? Uh, well, I, I love El when Elvis was doing rockabilly. I love that, and the that particular Johnny Burnett thing is really good. Um, um, Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins had a great mm -hmm. feel for the blues. Uh, so. I saw him once in uh, in a concert, or maybe he was on TV. Or I saw him both. Um, some of the stuff he was doing, you know, could have been a blue blues guitar player playing it. You know? 
Uh, I think those, those are among, you know, but there's a lot of them. I tend to like a, a lot of that stuff from the 50s. Yeah, rockabilly, they use a lot of blues licks. They just phrase them a little bit differently, you know? Right, it's just kind of got a different beat to it. Got a different swing beat for a little phrasing. Yeah, but it's it's pretty much all the blues, all the blues uh, um, scales. Right, and, and a lot of the artists that we consider rock and roll artists, like Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Fats Domino. I mean, a lot of that's basically blues, just yep. beat it up with a rock and roll beat, you know? Do you have a favorite pop star of, like ever? Like I know we're talking rockabilly and blues, but like pop person. Um, and I don't know. Um, actually, I thought um, I was impressed when I heard Amy Winehouse. Oh yeah, I'm very jazzy and bluesy for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a shame she's one of those artists that that's a 27 club right died at 27 yeah yeah i did see the doors too by the way they're really that club. yeah oh. yeah there, when i was um in college and uh we're actually when when living right before living blues was getting started around the time um amy had worked at the jazz record mart and um through them, we got free tickets to go to the uh, Kinetic Playground, which, like I said, was Chicago's equivalent of the Fillmore. And they would have, this was one of the great times, too, of, of my life, I think. Uh, this was before rock had gotten to be really big music, you know, before it was such a big business. And so you, you could go to the Kinetic Playground and hear two sets apiece of three different bands and like one night it was Fleetwood Mac, The Birds, and Muddy Waters. Wow. Uh, then I also heard The Doors there, uh, Moby Grape, Quicksilver Messenger Service. Moby Grape. All, all, all those bands that were, were touring at the time. And most, you know, Janis Joplin heard her. And uh, <laughs> I think the only one, one of the few that disappointed me was Steppenwolf. <laughs> you know, he was, John Kay was into the blues too, but. Steppenwolf sounded like a garage band trying to play Steppenwolf. <laughs> well, you know, they're often called what the first heavy metal band, at least for the precursor to it. Well, Jim, it was great to talk with you. Thank you, thank you for spending the time. I think this is the first person of any sort that's been inducted to a Hall of Fame uh, that's been on our podcast. So it was a historical event for us. Well, thank you. Uh, you're doing a great job. Uh, good luck with it, with all of it. I see you've got it's a, all Brian's baby, Jim. I, he just <laughs> brought me along for the ride. Trust me. I see you've got a John Lee Hooker shirt on too. <laughs> we didn't talk about him, but yeah, well, I, uh, we interviewed him a couple of times. So he he was great too. There's so just many, so many to choose from, and those yeah. guys all have great stories. Yeah, and I haven't mentioned Magic Sam. He was in my pantheon of great blues artists too. And uh, he, he died right before Living Blues started. And that was, um, he died in December, 1969. And when we had the first meetings about Living Blues, uh, there was some people who wanted to put him on the cover 
but I pointed out if we're going to have call the magazine Living Blues, we need to have a living artist on the cover. So we did do a story on him, but we put Helen Wolf on the cover instead because uh, Amy and I had interviewed Helen Wolf when he was playing at Northwestern. We got to sit with him backstage for a little while and we, we used that interview. Well, access will get you the cover. <laughs> yeah. Over to you, Brian. Well, thank you so much uh, to Jim O'Neill. Thank you for being on. Um, you know, we've uh, we've been heavier on the Southern Rock side of things, and uh, you know, we've had a few artists here and there of blues, but uh, we know we want to get uh, get ourselves deeper into that community, and and you're a big help and all that. I mean, we've just been just having this amazing conversation with you and just been like little kids in a candy store listening to this stuff so thank you jim thank you so much for being on the podcast all right well thanks brian and jason it's been fun being here thanks to jim o'neill from living blues magazine and uh, about every other blues accomplishment uh, <laughs> uh, uh committees you know uh wc handy and the mississippi blues trail um that was awesome little kid in a candy well, store not only does he has he started the uh, magazine, I keep calling it albums because we have so many arts artists on rep magazine, keeping the blues alive. He has actually lived to keeping the blues alive. That's like his whole life. Well, yeah, and he's you know talking about you know seeing Muddy Waters and and seeing Buddy Guy like in the earlier days and and BB uh, King and you know back in you know the late sixties. Call him on the phone. Yeah, right. That's awesome. <laughs> and getting them directly without going right. through managers and pr and then uh when he was talking about the kinetic playground in chicago mm -hmm. it, you know well you know saw the doors and then saw you know <laughs> steppenwolf and janice joplin and you know all the, yeah uh, steppenwolf wasn't very good <laughs> the peter green fleetwood mac and everybody <laughs> holy moly man yeah holy crap yeah, I don't know what else. What else to say when you're like, uh, he's like just saying stuff. I'm like, wow, wow. My my problem with this one is he was saying so much cool stuff. I was trying to process it and remember it or type <laughs> up notes just so I could go back to it, whether it was the books right. or the documentary or the yeah. artist I'd never heard of. I'm like, holy cow. So it's, you get yourself caught listening to the interview for your enjoyment, not conducting the interview. <laughs> oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, like we've had when we've had Gorman on, we've had Charlie Starr, and I, I didn't feel particularly starstruck at the beginning of this one, but then I kind of, I kind of did after yeah. a while. It's just like, wow, wow, I can't believe we're talking to you, wow. <laughs> and that'll be <laughs> fun like, with me when people ask me, like, man, you talked to Steve Gorman, you talked to Charlie Starr. It's like, dude, I talked to Jim O'Neill. That's right. Tell you, the, let me tell yes. you. And I'm going to re-listen to this one and have to oh, check for my sure. notes and catch all the stuff I wasn't able to get. Because I'm like, honestly, I was asking a lot of those lightning round questions for my own interests, not just all the... Oh, yeah, I could tell that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was great, man. I, I, I loved it. Yeah, so yeah, just absolutely wow, man. And until then, or until whenever and whatever comes next, so always remember Southern Rock is Rabbit, Blues is Blood. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
Take a big swing. What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. And I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, You don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.